Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is your host, Abby Martin. This is the audio of our show. You can watch the episodes on our YouTube channel or at theempirefiles.tv. The perpetual occupation of Afghanistan has become so normalized, it mostly serves as background noise to Americans. It's even jokingly referred to as the forever war, accepted as just a constant reality. A soldier dies now and again, a couple dozen civilians get killed in another bombing. It's never enough to stir the population to pressure Washington to stop it. The endless war drags on. Since 2001, almost one million U.S. troops have been deployed to Afghanistan many repeatedly. Of those, 2,300 have died. And the new revelation that nearly 4,000 U.S. mercenaries have also died fighting in Afghanistan, almost double the number of U.S. troops, shows the American occupation is even bigger than we've been led to believe. From Bush to Obama to Trump, every president promised to end the war. But always, their plans to bring the troops home first required sending more troops. People often ask me, how long will this last? This particular battlefront will last as long as it takes to bring Al-Qaeda to justice. It may happen tomorrow. It may happen a month from now. It may take a year or two, but we will prevail. Al-Qaeda is on the path to defeat, and by 2014, the war in Afghanistan will be over. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. Others will ask, why don't we leave immediately? That answer is also clear. We must give Afghanistan the opportunity to stabilize. The consequences of a rapid exit are both predictable and unacceptable. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. Conditions on the ground, not arbitrary timetables, will guide our strategy from now on. And there's a reason, despite an unresolvable military quagmire, that the empire won't let go of Afghanistan. First, you have to look at the world in the same way the capitalist class looks at the world, as a chessboard. Every country another piece on an imperial puzzle they long to complete. Maybe you can be one of us. The few, the proud, the Marines. Afghanistan, just as a landmass, sits at the doorstep of the main rising competitors to American hegemony, China, India, and Russia. It also borders oil-rich nations the U.S. wants to dominate, Iran, and a litany of former Soviet republics. This central positioning has long made Afghanistan the dream site of oil pipelines planned by U.S. corporations. But those untapped profits pale in comparison to Afghanistan's real hidden treasure. In 2010, an internal Pentagon memo identified $1 trillion in mineral wealth beneath Afghan soil. The Pentagon said Afghanistan could become the Saudi Arabia of lithium, a mineral used in every smartphone and laptop. Lithium is only one of many resources to be pillaged. As the report explained, Huge veins of iron, copper, cobalt, gold, and critical industrial metals are so big and include so many minerals that are essential to modern industry that Afghanistan could eventually be transformed into one of the most important mining centers in the world. 
The resources have never been fully exploited because of decades of armed conflict. In a visit to Washington last month, Afghan President Hamid Karzai said the value could be up to $3 trillion. It's very heartening that Afghanistan has a very bright future if the Afghan mineral reserves are properly uh, extracted. Keeping U.S. forces in Afghanistan simply to secure rights to strip the ground is more than enough reason for the empire. Coincidentally, since the U.S. invasion, Afghanistan has become the largest opium producer in the world. At the same time, the United States has the world's biggest appetite for opium, which Big Pharma is currently forced to pay a pretty premium to purchase from India and Turkey. If only there was a country the U.S. could exploit as a neo-colony for the same product. Not to mention the CIA has a long history of using illicit drug money to fund its black ops. While there are so many different sources of potential profit to be made with a total victory, for now, it's the military-industrial complex that is reaping the greatest rewards. A significant slice of the unknown trillions the U.S. has spent in Afghanistan has gone straight to corporate defense contractors. Every bomb dropped or bullet fired, every aircraft or mercenary deployed, is another million-dollar payment to the defense industry. Good thing they're also determining the policy. The top three war profiteers are Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and Boeing. Just a coincidence, then, that Trump appointed Lockheed Martin senior executive John Rood as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, and Raytheon senior executive Mark Esper as Secretary of Defense, who replaced Boeing's senior executive Patrick Shanahan. Do we need any more proof that war is a racket? When you take a closer look at the Afghanistan war, it's glaringly apparent that all of these lives are being sacrificed for the continued financial gain of multi-billion dollar firms. It's a reality so scandalous, so transparently criminal, that it should be all the political ammo that's needed to force the war to end. The problem with this war is there's virtually no pressure for any politician or military official to take responsibility or be held accountable. Anyone in power can just wait to pass the problem on to the next executor. And for this war to end, we have to look at where it really started. Afghanistan has a rich cultural history spanning over 3,000 years. It has spawned various musical, architectural, and artistic traditions. But when colonialism and U.S. interference enters into their history, this growth was sent backwards. Today, Afghanistan has been reduced to one of the poorest countries in the world. Modern Afghanistan was first invaded and occupied by the British Empire in 1838 and was marred in guerrilla war and subjugation until they won their independence almost 80 years later. But independence in 1919 began decades of rule by a feudal monarchy that would last 60 years before the Sour Revolution put into power the Socialist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. The new government implemented land reform, equality for women, legalization of trade unions, and a sweeping literacy campaign. The CIA helped organize and arm the old landlord class and conservative religious sectors into militias to overthrow the new state. The Soviet Union sent its military to support the communists against the Mujahideen insurgency. While it staved off the overthrow of the Sour Revolution, 
it cemented a state of permanent violence. The U.S. initiated Operation Cyclone, which had the explicit goal of locking the Soviet army in a quagmire. We have with us six from the Afghanistan freedom fighters. The CIA imposed a state of civil war as they pumped billions of dollars to fund the Mujahideen, a bloody guerrilla war that laid the foundation for the endless fighting still today. It is entirely true that this was a war that was fought with our gold, but with their blood. Journalist Ahmed Rashid writes about the effect of this U.S. operation. Some 35,000 Muslim radicals from 40 Islamic countries joined Afghanistan's fight between 1982 and 1992. Afghan people don't have a history of being religious zealots. To create the CIA-desired jihad required the recruitment of Arab, Egyptian, and Pakistani extremists. So the fundamentalism that emerged in Afghanistan is a CIA construct. One of the key players in organizing these recruitment training camps was none other than Osama bin Laden, and fighters that comprised the Mujahideen later became the Taliban. We've just held a very useful, I might say brief, but also I will add a very moving discussion with Chairman Yunus Khalis of the Islamic Union of Mujahideen of Afghanistan. I expressed our nation's continued strong support for the resistance. After 20 years of violent clashes and the withdrawal of the Soviet army, the Taliban eventually seized power in 1996. This victory was initially welcomed by Washington. With the Soviet Union out and an end to the armed conflict, the U.S. might finally be able to start building that oil pipeline they wanted. So Unical, the Union Oil Company of California, and the Clinton administration promoted the Taliban as the best source of stability to serve U.S. capital and manage its pipeline projects. One of the things with the Taliban is, is they didn't have a clue about the oil and gas business. The idea was, was to bring them over and establish some credibility with the, with the uh, Taliban that, that we were a real company. Marty Miller secretly invited a group of Taliban leaders to UNICAL's headquarters in Sugarland, Texas. No press covered the event. Marty Miller was vice president of oil company UNICAL. They wanted to build a huge oil and gas pipeline through Taliban-controlled areas of Afghanistan. But how did these negotiations influence U.S. foreign policy towards the Taliban? But despite friendly formal relations between Clinton and the Taliban, they were secretly harboring Osama bin Laden as he cultivated al-Qaeda and declared a fatwa on the U.S. The U.S. government has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous and criminal through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine, and we believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those killed in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq. For this and other acts of aggression and injustice, we have declared jihad against the U.S. The U.S. today has set a double standard, calling whoever goes against its injustice a terrorist. It wants to occupy our countries, steal our resources, impose agents on us to rule us, and then wants us to agree to all this. The Clinton administration deemed the Taliban an unreliable partner for the oil pipelines. With negotiations on construction for Unical falling apart, 
the U.S. was looking for a reason to invade. Shortly after George W. Bush came to power, they got the perfect excuse. Today, it's almost universal that, of course, the U.S. had to invade Afghanistan in retaliation. But that's just another lie. In fact, as soon as U.S. bombing began, the Taliban offered to capture and extradite bin Laden for trial. The Taliban say that evidence of bin Laden's guilt should be given to a neutral government. And they warn that countries attacking Afghanistan have always come to grief. Make no mistake, Afghanistan, as it was in the past, the Great Britain, he, he came, the Red Army came, Afghanistan is a swamp. We know this from not only intelligence, but from the history of military conflict in Afghanistan. It's been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake. With total imperial hubris, Bush arrogantly invaded Afghanistan, rejected the Taliban's offer, and instead declared that the goal of the war was not just destroying al-Qaeda, but for some reason also overthrowing the Taliban. And the fact is that such people were instigated by the CIA and by the government of America in that time to go and fight the Soviets. And such people were called the heroes of independence. And all of a sudden, they've changed now to, to terrorists. We don't say that we are defending terrorism, but we need to know whether they are really terrorists or not. We, we were called the puppets of America until 1998. So we don't know as to what, what to do now. We have been given no counter proposals. And now the perception in Afghanistan is that maybe the United States is always looking for a boogeyman. In the blink of an eye, the U.S. was at war with people who had no role in the 9-11 attacks. Conveniently, the U.S. already had a new regime picked out for Afghanistan, including Chevron consultant and CIA asset Hamid Karzai, the first president. With U.S. backing, Hamid Karzai was inaugurated as president. His brother had been working for UNICAL and Karzai was well acquainted with the pipeline plans. From the very beginning, the U.S.-led occupation of Afghanistan proved quite pointless. The hunt for Al-Qaeda and Taliban goes on. And we stand shoulder to shoulder with the United States and our other coalition allies in the global war of terrorism. But how many Al-Qaeda have you captured? We haven't uh, captured any al-Qaeda, but... And, and how many have you actually managed to kill here in southeast Afghanistan? We haven't killed any. The war immediately became a quagmire, mostly laughed off by Washington, as the patriotic infection post 9-11 made them immune from criticism. Looking back, they knew this 20-year disaster was doomed from the start. <clears throat> Sir, may I borrow your point? I'll point. You tell me where to point. Okay. <laughs> Six. I've been, I've been waiting all day to do this. I mean. Just get me in the back of the head, Mr. <laughs> How much of what you've just described relates to or, or fulfills, I guess, whatever prior planning went into this? And how much of it, frankly, is a surprise? How much of this is a surprise? What is this? What was taking place in the earlier phases was exactly as planned. 
it, it looked like nothing was happening. Indeed, it looked like we were in a, all together now, quagmire. Stalemate. Stalemate, yes. Rock and roll! The unraveling war largely faded into the background as the U.S. launched another full-scale invasion of Iraq less than two years later. And the disaster of Iraq quickly overshadowed the disaster of Afghanistan. The Afghanistan failure may have gotten more attention were it not for the catastrophic bloodshed in Baghdad. For the first few years, more than 10 times as many U.S. troops were killed in Iraq than they were in Afghanistan. There has been a lot of progress since 2001. After all, girls are back in school. You've got uh, boys flying kites again in Afghanistan. The anger of the country mounted against Bush's handling of Iraq, as U.S. and civilian deaths in Afghanistan quietly grew year by year. And in 2008, Americans elected Barack Obama, the candidate who essentially ran on a strategy to end the wars and bring the troops home. But for anyone reading between the lines, Obama's anti-war argument was that we were focusing on the dumb war in Iraq and neglecting the good war in Afghanistan. I don't oppose war in all circumstances. And when I look out over this crowd today, I know there is no shortage of patriots or patriotism. What I do oppose is a dumb war. With the same two-faced rhetoric, Obama announced the end of the Afghanistan war by announcing it was first going into overdrive. And going forward, we will not blindly stay the course. Instead, we will set clear metrics to measure progress and hold ourselves accountable. And that America has no interest in fighting an endless war in Afghanistan. And as our coalition agreed, by the end of 2014, the Afghans will be fully responsible for the security of their country. Casualties surged. U.S. troops requiring limb amputations increased 60%, with a 90% increase in severe wounds to their genitalia. Other than that, Obama's strategy accomplished nothing. The grand plan to defeat the Taliban with 100,000 U.S. troops went up in smoke, proving once and for all, the war was objectively unwinnable. When military defeat became clear, it began years of bumbling, confused generals using soldiers as bait to pointlessly fend off constant attacks with no discernible purpose. Simply continue to tighten the noose until we get where we want to go. Okay. <laughs> Are we losing this war? Absolutely no way. Can the enemy win it? Absolutely no way. Lieutenant General David Rodriguez, Deputy Commander of U.S. Forces in Afghanistan, General, great to see you, and it looks like you are ready to watch some Army football. We sure are. We got our uh, football signed by the team, we got our hat, and uh, we're ready to watch some ball tonight. We have made significant progress with regards to our primary mission of disrupting, dismantling, and ultimately defeating Al-Qaeda. We are not losing it, and uh, the enemy cannot win. This undeniable progress has allowed us to begin transitioning to Afghan security control. I can see the columns tomorrow and all the, the uh, 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 parts. Look, I, you know, the truth is, is that I, I, I feel like, you know, we're making some steady progress. It's a slow win, I guess, is probably uh, what we're accomplishing right on over here. It's not the way that uh, I think 
both the Afghans, the international community, and the American people would like to see us uh, conduct this war. On one small mountainside alone, Korangal Valley, 150 U.S. troops died to control the passageway, only for the next commander to admit it had no strategic importance at all, and left. So, after a string of humiliations on a sprawling battlefield, the U.S. retreated, but stopped short of a full withdrawal. Obama drew down only enough to keep the U.S. occupation in command. And so began the strategy we see continue today, a forever stalemate. Just enough soldiers to keep a U.S. foothold, just few enough dying to keep it out of the headlines. Afghanistan is a total and complete disaster. What are we doing? Let's get with it. Get out of Afghanistan. We've wasted billions and billions of dollars, and more importantly, thousands and thousands of lives. Trump campaigned on ending the endless wars, including in Afghanistan. But like a true con artist, Trump expanded the U.S. military in every region of the world. In Afghanistan, despite the rhetoric that he was bringing the troops home, he dramatically escalated the war. When the new emperor was faced with the question, how much more blood and treasure wasted on an unwinnable war, he answered, a lot more. My original instinct was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts. But all my life, I've heard that decisions are much different when you sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. In other words, when you're president of the United States. Instead of continuing Obama's slow withdrawal of troops, Trump kicked it up again. When Obama left office, there were 8,400 U.S. troops left in Afghanistan. Now, there are about 14,000. While now they talk of a major drawdown, no action has been taken, and they only claim to want to return to the levels of the original 8,400. You'd never know it from watching the news, but U.S. troops are still dying in Afghanistan. To date, 73 have died under Trump, and 2019 was the deadliest for Americans in five years. But this only scratches the surface. Trump also gave the Pentagon new authorization to bomb anything, anytime, leading to more bombs dropped on Afghanistan than any other president. Trump dropped more bombs there in 2018 and 2019 than in any other year during the entire war. Let that sink in for a second. The most bombing of any other year, more than during the massive bombing invasion of Afghanistan right after 9-11, more than Obama's troop surge in 2010 when 100,000 soldiers were engaged in the heaviest fighting. But Trump's most terrifying escalation is not even his sheer number of bombs but their size. Marking a new chapter in the war, he oversaw the largest non-nuclear bomb to ever be dropped with a blast radius of one mile. That is what freedom looks like. That's the red, white, and blue. Well, one of my favorite things is watching bombs drop on bad guys. The mother of all bombs. Now at 11, the mother of all bombs, the most popular... The White House and the press gleefully repeated its name, the mother of all bombs, or Moab. The name itself tells you everything you need to know. The origin of the mother of all prefix is the Quran, 
Mecca, or Muslims' holiest site, means the mother of all cities. Using the mother of all bombs to bomb Muslims is almost too dystopian to believe. Trump, in many ways, used the Moab as a statement, as a threat, rather than a battlefield decision. The Pentagon claimed zero civilian casualties. But when challenged about how it was possible to know, Trump's man Mattis said, Frankly, digging into tunnels to count dead bodies is probably not a good use of our troops' time. Civilians in Afghanistan have always been the number one victims of this unfair war. Conservative estimates put Afghan dead at over 150,000 since the occupation. We have the greatest military in the world and they've done a job as usual. So we have given them total authorization and that's what they're doing. And frankly, that's why they've been so successful lately. If you look at what's happened over the last eight weeks and compare that really to what's happened over the last eight years, you'll see there's a tremendous difference. Shockingly, Afghanistan today is suffering the highest number of fatalities from the entire war, the vast majority from U.S. forces. Trump presided over a 52% increase in civilian casualties in just his first nine months in office. It was only his second week in office when a U.S. airstrike killed 18 women and children in Helmand province. Hundreds more would soon meet the same fate. And that's just from U.S. strikes. They've pressed their Afghan puppet forces to increase their strikes as well, with their own explosion of civilian casualties. In April 2017, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan found that U.S.-backed forces killed 71 Afghan civilians in a single strike, 30 of them children. An entire generation of Afghan youth know no reality but U.S. bombing and occupation. It's no wonder that a study found that two-thirds of Afghanistan's surviving population suffers mental health problems as a result of the war. And they can't even claim the strategy of callous killing is working. The Taliban today controls more territory than it ever has during the entire war. So to cover up this failure, they simply found new ways to lie to the public about it. In a bombshell 2018 expose, the New York Times found the Pentagon was claiming the Taliban only controlled 44% of districts, when in reality, they dominated 61%. We're like policemen. We're not fighting a war. If we wanted to fight a war in... Afghanistan and win it. I could win that war in a week. I just don't want to kill 10 million people. I have plans on Afghanistan that if I wanted to win that war, Afghanistan would be wiped off the face of the earth. It would be gone. It would be over in literally in 10 days. The impossibility of defeating the Taliban is why the Trump administration is pushing direct talks to try to negotiate a power-sharing agreement that allows permanent U.S. influence. Keep in mind, a deal with the Taliban was already official policy throughout the Obama years. The whole time we were told the evil Taliban must be defeated, it was always admitted behind the scenes that they would always be in power. The U.S. just wanted a piece of the pie. So what's the deal with this deal? While details change constantly, one consistent feature is allowing U.S. troops or bases to remain in the country. Even Trump recently bragged that the Taliban actually wants us to stay. So let me get this straight. We can't leave Afghanistan until we get the Taliban to accept a deal. But the terms of that deal is allowing U.S. bases to stay in Afghanistan. So doesn't that prove that they never intend to leave? 
When polled, 90% of the Afghan people strongly support a deal with the Taliban. Here are Afghan women and Afghan army soldiers who had just been fighting them, taking selfies with the Taliban during a ceasefire in 2018. But since the negotiations are dictated by the US, not Afghans, it wields impossible language that gives Washington a blanket excuse to break it at any time. For example, many were shocked that the major peace deal finally signed between the US and the Taliban on February 29th of this year signified that U.S. bases would, in fact, be closed. But it was a farce. The alleged U.S. withdrawal was all premised on the Taliban, quote, preventing any individual or organization from threatening the U.S. Huh, how could something like that ever be enforced or accomplished? How could it even be measured? The supposed political achievement was on such a flimsy foundation that it only took four days for the U.S. to call it off and start bombing the Taliban again. The constant tease of a peace deal with the Taliban seems to only serve the purpose of assuring the public that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Without the constant promise by Trump saying there's going to be a great deal, Washington would just have to admit that there is no end in sight. Early in 2019, there was another revelation that should have been the final nail in the coffin for the American war effort, the Afghanistan Papers. Confidential documents published last week by the Washington Post revealed that for years, senior U.S. officials misled the public about the war in Afghanistan. There's a senior national security official who said that there was constant pressure from the Obama White House to produce figures showing the troop surge was working, and I'm quoting from the report here, despite hard evidence to the contrary. As vice president, war what did you know? Afghanistan, Af Yes, sir, Afghanistan. The Afghanistan papers proved once and for all what we've been saying all along, that all our military and political leaders consider the war unwinnable, that they can't explain what winning would even look like, and they've adopted an official policy of lying about everything just to keep it going. The papers barely got any coverage in the mass media and were given no attention by Congress because they implicate both parties. The magnitude of these revelations is so great so scandalous that it should have created the political fallout necessary to force the war's end, just like the impact the Pentagon Papers had on the Vietnam War. But with the long strategy of keeping the issue of the war suppressed, it went largely unnoticed. You do think there should be some U.S. presence that remains yes, in Yes, a very small presence to be able to determine whether or not, I mean a small footprint. What does that look like? It looks look American... like several thousand people. Through the two decades of war, there have been two decades of resistance to it. The Coalition of Veterans Organizations is reaching out to active duty soldiers, saying the tide has turned against the war in Afghanistan. Their message, you don't have to go if you don't want to. In fact, you don't have to be there. And that's what this campaign is all about, letting people know uh, what their options are. All you need to do is apply for conscientious objector status. We signed up to, to serve our country, uh, but we didn't sign up to have our lives thrown away in a, in a political chess game. The tide of the anti-war struggle has risen and fallen. And now is the time again to build the next wave of resistance. It's pretty obvious to most Americans at this point, there is absolutely no acceptable rationale to continue this two-decade-long war. 
How many more amputees? How many more civilian deaths should we accept in this pointless, immoral war? These two decades of suffering for millions have only benefited a tiny, rich group of elites, all at the expense of us and the Afghan people. We need to take the debate out of the war machine's paradigm. We have no right to be bombing anyone in Afghanistan. We have no right to be occupying Afghanistan. We have no right to be dictating who Afghanistan's government is. We must not allow any more distraction from the only demand that needs to be forced on Washington. A complete withdrawal of all U.S. troops, bases, special ops, and drones. No, not sometime soon, but now, immediately. There must be reparations to the Afghan people for all the death and destruction we've caused and real legal accountability for the politicians and generals who have lied over and over again to make this war a forever war.
story out. And I only like to share it after I sing it. But that was a poem written by a member of the Taliban. And when I read that, I was very struck by what I read because that could have been written by anyone I served with. There isn't a whole lot of difference between farmers over there defending their land and farmers over here defending their land. Thank you for listening to our Empire Files podcast. Help keep us independent and ad-free at patreon.com slash empirefiles. And be sure to catch our newest episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel.